I'm sure that all, all of you would guess that I'm like 22 or 23, uh, but I am actually mid-30s, and um, because I'm now mid-30s, that means I have watched uh, several things that are now uh, extinct, okay? So there were certain things that I used or saw or was a part of in the 80s um, that now are not used. Uh, there were certain things that I saw in the 90s that now are extinct. And so I thought what would be fun, uh, for some of you this will be an education. Uh, I thought what we would do is I would just kind of show you some of these things. And again, for some of you, I, I know and I realize that you haven't even seen some of these things. So let's have some fun. Let's begin here with this um, archaic piece of equipment. Um, and I, I want to I be honest here. How many of you have never, ever seen one of these, okay? Is there anyone here who's never seen one of these? For real? Okay. No, is it, listen, it's all good. It's all good. Okay. So you're being serious? You've never seen, you're, you're, you've never seen this ever? Okay. She's saying, what is it? All right. So this is what we used to store things on uh, for computers, okay? So now we have flash drives that can hold like, you know, 300 gigabytes. This could hold 1.44 megabytes. That means ah emoji could be put on this, okay? Like, like, this was the original storage device. It is now extinct, although one asterisk, if you ever want to find out if a product can still be purchased, where do you go? Of course, Amazon. You can still purchase a 10-pack of these for a mantelpiece for $12.99. So just in case, it comes in multi multi-color as well. So if you're interested, my friend who doesn't know what they are and who's not looking right now, please. She's like looking it up on her phone like, this is crazy, right? The future is now, okay? All right, how about, how about this? Any, any of you guys uh, ever seen this? Um, prove it. Um, so, <laughs> so listen, uh, this is what we used to put music on. And like now, like when you guys are in dating relationships and you want to share some, you know, romantic tunes uh, with your uh, significant other, you, you send them like a Spotify playlist or, you know, something on Apple Music. Listen, like, in my day, we had to, like, song by song, and sometimes, like, connecting a microphone to a boombox, hook it up and record what was coming out of the speaker, make a mixtape on a cassette, okay? Never went flawless, always, though, was romantic, and now these are, you know, nearly extinct. Now, there's still vinyl out there, they're kind of coming back, eight tracks are coming back. Cassette tapes, I think they're long gone, okay? How about, how about this? Next slide, okay? Um, I know that many of you have never, ever seen this, but because Ghostbusters has just come back out, I thought I would show you uh, the high C drink that came out when, when the original Ghostbusters came out. The Ecto Cooler, okay? Now, I don't know what, why they thought this was a good idea because it was like this green, nasty drink with a ghost on it. You know what I'm saying? Like, everything about this screams creepy, okay? But actually, I was doing some research as extinct as I thought that this product is or was, they're actually now, because Ghostbusters have, has come back out, they're trying to re-bring re it out. So pretty cool. Has anyone seen the Ghostbusters movies? It, how is it? Pretty decent? Okay. It was all right. What do you think, Ben? Decent? Okay, good. Now, now, I want to I blow your minds. I want to blow your minds, okay? Look at this artifact, okay? Look at this artifact. Next slide. Okay. Hold on a second. Let me, let me go slow. This is a phone book, okay? And what people would do with phone books is they would put their phone number in there, okay? Which is weird in so many different ways. Like, if one person had access to the, this book, they had access to your phone number, which now is just weird, right? Like, they're not producing, you know, massive amounts of logs of all of our phone numbers that you can search on the internet, right? It's just weird. But then, like, so when you wanted to order pizza, you went to the P section and, like, you know, scrolled for numbers. This is crazy, okay? Uh, have any of you here ever used a phone book, just so we can point out those who have? Seriously? Seriously? When did you use a phone book? You worked in retail, so you cheated. Okay, I understand. I understand. Now, uh, I'm just kidding about that. Um, now, this last piece, uh, I think maybe you'll recognize, but my guess is many of you have never, ever used, Okay? Um, now, 
The comforter, the, the comforter gives it away. This is a Motel 6, okay? And I'm not so interested in the phone. What I'm interested in is what the phone used to function as in a hotel. And that was a wake-up call, okay? So let me just tell you what would happen. Before you go to bed, you'd ring the front desk, or sometimes there was a button on your phone that said wake-up call. And they would answer, and you would say, I would like to be woken up tomorrow morning at 7.23. And I always did some weird, you know, time just to test it out, right? Did, do they round up, or is it precise? No problem, sir. We'll see you tomorrow morning at 7.23. And like magic, right? Like the next morning, right at 7.23, the phone is ringing. Well, well, well now this, is, this kind of practice is nearly extinct because on your cell phone, you can set like 35 different alarms, right? And some of you do that. How many of you are snoozers? How many of you hit the snooze? Over and over. Oh, my. And some of you are like being nudged by your friend because you're sleeping now. I understand. I get it. Um, uh, I, for one, am not a snoozer. My alarm wakes up. I like pop out of bed, okay? Hair is already like this, and it's go time, okay? It's interesting, my, my family my family is kind of diversified. So my son Dawson, who many of you know, looks exactly like me. He's exactly the same way. He'll like, we'll hear him pattering down the stairs. He'll come downstairs. He's like, daddy, like, let's go do something crazy. And it's like 6.30 a.m., right? My wife and my daughter and Maddox, they need to like lay on the couch, you know, with a cozy blanket, take a minute, right? It's weird. It's crazy. But the wake-up call, listen, the wake-up call was abrupt precise and um, really a thing of the past. But, but what if tonight, not for means of nostalgia, but for an amazing grace for each of us, what if all of a sudden tonight we could receive a bit of a wake-up call? In fact, what if each of us collectively, corporately, got such a wake-up call that we didn't just ask for it, but then all of us got to watch what the Lord can do in taking a group of people and helping us realize that we're asleep. You see, one of the greatest dangers, one of the greatest lies of the enemy is that for many of you who are asleep in your sin, tonight you don't even realize it. And so what if God would be so gracious to show us that we need it, and then to literally wake us up. So here's what I want to ask you. Tonight, are you willing just to ask for it? In fact, right now, I'm going to provide some space and time. Could you just, in this moment, ask God to wake you up? And it'll be different for every one of us and what that means, the implications. But right now, could we ask God to come here and give us a massive wake-up call. So in your own way, why don't you pray that out? And I'll cover us. Come on. God, come in power right now. For those of us who have fallen asleep, complacent, distant, numb, I'm asking right now, Father, that you would awaken our hearts with truth that transcends not just our sin and not just time, but every facet of our existence. Do that work now, God, we pray. Come now. In your great and holy name, amen. So tonight we are in part four of what has become my favorite chapter in the Bible. I didn't think that it would be that when we started studying 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But what's happened in studying the resurrection chapter is I've realized how incredibly awesome it really, really is. And so for those of you that are just joining us or for those that need a refresher, 
I want to show you some of the highlights of the last three weeks. We have three more, including tonight, in this unbelievable chapter 15. So here's week one. Here was the summary of week one from verse three. Paul just proclaiming the truth of the gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and yes, my friends, feel free to dance in the aisles, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And and I've been giving you permission week in and week out to express the joy that comes in a risen Christ. So again, don't, don't need permission tonight to express that joy. This is true, incredible, love it. Here was week two, okay? Check this out from verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, you see, week two, we studied the seven things that would occur or that would be a reality if Jesus hadn't been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, fruitless, meaningless, and your faith is in vain. In other words, if there is no resurrection, if he is dead, if he was a teacher whose bones are now decaying in a tomb, then your faith, everything that you trust in, is meaningless, fruitless. We could even say worthless. But if he is resurrected, then it means something else. So here was week three. I hope this was an encouragement last week as we looked at the order of resurrection. Then comes the end, verse 24 says, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. That's That's Jesus. He rules, he reigns, and he will destroy. I shared with you last week the question from my my son and my children about why does God allow Satan to live? And I shared with you the powerful truth that he is allowed to live so that God can show his ultimate victory in conquering him. And so verse 25 says, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet That will happen, it is true, and now tonight, 1 Corinthians 15, let's start in verse 29. We've uh, covered some big chunks tonight, a small chunk of scripture, but it is incredibly beautiful. But verse 29 is somewhat tricky. Check this out. Otherwise, Paul says, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Excuse me, right? Come on, say, say? If, If the dead are not raised at all, Why are people baptized on their behalf? This is crazy strange. So, listen, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of different interpretations. Um, Here's what I know. I don't know what this means, okay? I don't. Commentators don't. There There are at least over 40 different interpretations on this passage. Uh, The reason why we don't know is because there's not a lot of historical context on baptizing alive people to make intercession for dead people. Do you guys understand? But then, but then, Captain Koz, all right, like Keith Kozlowski, you guys know this guy, okay? Our college ministry director here, unbelievable, unbelievable dude. We were studying this passage and he's like, hold on a second. I think like there's some Mormon connection here. And so I, I, was, I was curious and then he started sharing. Cue the slide, check this out. Did you know this all came from Keith? That Ancestry.com was built by two Mormons. And some of you are like, random fact for the night? Like, well, like, why are you telling us this, okay? Well, think about it. Ancestry.com, that's right, shows you your ancestors, okay? For those of you from the school of Captain Obvious, all right? But here's why that's significant for this conversation. Straight from the Mormon website. If it's on the internet, it must be true. Look at this, okay? Church members... Use family history records, Ancestry.com, okay, to perform temple ordinances, including baptism, for their kindred dead if these deceased family members were unable to perform the earthly rites themselves. Now, you want to see a crazy, uh, a crazy line? Look at this. This gives deceased ancestors the opportunity to accept these ordinances in the afterlife. What? This is on a major world religions website. Let me read the last line again because I don't think, I think some of you are like, what's the big deal? Let me show you this, okay? This gives deceased ancestors the opportunity to accept these ordinances in the afterlife. 
So listen, what Mormons believe in, and I just want to make sure you understand, okay? There are a ton of differences between Mormonism and Christianity. Anytime, anytime I talk to a Mormon, okay? A, I'm praying for their salvation. B, I just ask them what they believe about Jesus. That's all I need to ask. Because generally they try to get me in a conversation about the afterlife and concubines and all kinds of crazy things. And instead I just say, what do you believe about Jesus? And when they say, well, you know, he was, he's kind of a savior. You know, he's, he's, more, he's more like a prophet and a teacher. I'm like, whoa, we believe completely different things. You see, I believe Jesus died and rose again and is king, risen and reigning Lord. You don't believe that. And so because of that, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, then Jesus is the only way. So that puts us on opposite ends of the spectrum. Now, I love you and I'm praying for you and I long for you to come to Christ, but what must be happening in Corinth is maybe something that the Mormons believe as well, that somehow the alive can get baptized and then that affects the dead that didn't have a chance to do so, okay? So I can't say for sure that's, what going, that's what's going on in Corinth, but it seems like there's a lot of good parallels there and certainly uh, things interesting to note. Let's, let's move on, verse 30. You're like, stop talking about baptism and dead people. Okay, verse 30. Why are we, Paul says, in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. Now, if you have spent any time with me in the last six months, you know that there has been one thing that I've been super, super passionate about, learning a ton about, and that's been the reality that we in Christ have signed up to die, and it's our joy to do so. He's called us to lose our life so that we can save it, and the blessing of following Christ is that we get to be united with him in a death like his, that we can be united with him in a life like his. So when I came to this, I was like, sweet mother, like, like this is precisely what I've been waiting on. Finally, Paul says it exactly. I die every day. Problem is, it's a little bit different context, okay? So this was going to be like my theme verse. I was going to tattoo it on my back. Instead, I want to explain the context. What Paul is saying is if the resurrection hadn't happened, why in the world would I put myself in harm's way? He's saying, I, I'm in danger. Physically, I have the risk of being persecuted every single day. If Jesus did not resurrect from the dead, why would I do that, he's saying. And you're like, well, does Paul ever talk about his persecutions? Uh, he certainly does. Check this out, 1 Corinthians 11. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. You guys get the picture? Cue the next slide. In toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold, and that's right, an igloo exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Okay. It's always interesting to me that people don't read this verse when someone's coming to Christ, you know? Right? When have you ever quoted this verse as someone is like wrestling with whether to come to Jesus? Okay, so let's look at how Paul suffered, right? And you like turn to this, this text. You know why it's tough to do that? Because we've disconnected joy and suffering. But the truth and the beauty is, is that if he has resurrected, then that means it is Paul's joy to endure all of these things. Let's say it this way. Next slide, look at this. If Christ isn't resurrected, why would you ever, number one, look at this, risk ridicule by talking to a coworker, neighbor, or friend about Christ. If he hasn't resurrected, why would you ever tell anyone about Jesus? Why would you risk someone uh, defaming you or looking at you like you were crazy? Listen, if he's not resurrected, I get it. Don't tell anybody about him. Or just talk about him like he had some nice moral teachings. If he's not resurrected, there's, there's no need to put yourself in harm's way. 
Next slide. If, if Christ isn't resurrected, why would you not seek revenge? Let's get really vulnerable, honest for a second. Revenge is kind of somewhere in there really fun, isn't it? Seriously. Like, has there ever been a time when someone wronged you, and deep down there, like somewhere in there, you really, really, really wanted to get revenge, and it kind of excited you, the thought of doing it? Uh, There's seriousness to that, and then there's also, like, the joking side, right? So when someone plays a prank on you, what's one of the first things that we say? Like, you better watch out, man. You better watch your back. I'm going to get you. I'm coming at you, you know? But if he's not resurrected then why would you not seek revenge? In other words, if Jesus is dead, friends, go at it. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, a gossip for a gossip, a steal your boyfriend for a steal your boyfriend. Like, like there's no bounds. Listen, if he's not resurrected, then my friends, please get you some revenge. That would have been Paul's opportunity. Every lashing, all of a sudden he gets out his, you know, ancient Mesopotamian grenade launcher or something and starts smoking some people, right? Like, if he's not resurrected, then go after it. Number three, how about this? If Christ isn't resurrected, why would you go on an international mission trip or be an international missionary? If he's not, if he's not resurrected, why would you go to someone and say, hey, listen, I, Grandma, I really need $300. Well, how come? Well, it's an international mission trip, but really, I'm just going to go see some awesome waterfalls in Ecuador. Like, that would, all, that would be all you got if he's not resurrected. And, and this past trip, you know, I'm like, on my plate was just laid this fish with scales and eyes, and you have to eat it because you're in someone's home, you know? Like, why would I do that? Okay, I wanted a tombstone pizza, not a fish with scales, you know? Like, why would I subject myself to that if he's not resurrected? You guys know, like, I shower like 17 times a day. You go to Ecuador like you're bathing in a river, okay? It's like massive out of my comfort zone. Why would I do that if he's not resurrected? I know that may seem lame, but if you're OCD like me, then maybe not. Listen, if Christ isn't resurrected, why would you ever rejoice in suffering? There would be no joy in suffering. Because like you find in people who do not believe, They are trying to run from suffering. But there's one very distinct difference between that mentality and those in Christ. Can I show you Romans 5? Check this out. Awesome text from Paul. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because we know that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So if Christ isn't resurrected, then all those things are questions. But if he is resurrected, now, next slide, now they're statements. If Jesus is alive, then you know what? I'm going to risk ridicule. I'm going to share Jesus. Even if my neighbor double birds me in the face, like, I long for them to know the love of Christ. The same love and hope that I know and have. I'm going to risk it. I'm going to risk the relationship. I'm going to endure hardship and potential persecution and suffering because he is resurrected. This is the whole journey of 1 Corinthians 15. This is why it's become my favorite chapter. The resurrection of Jesus impacts every single second of every single day. It's statements like we need not even begin to seek revenge. Why? Because we're modeling our lives after a risen Christ who on the cross could have smoked everybody. You know, the centurions are like stabbing him in the side and blood and water flowed and he could have ripped his right arm off and just backslapped that centurion to hell. Instead, he took it. He endured suffering. Number three, the statement then is we will go on international mission trips. We will support international missionaries. Why? Because we long for the ambassadorship of Christ to be spread all over the world. And finally, we will rejoice in suffering. Questions move to statements. But Paul knows that this is a struggle. He knows it's going to be hard. And so that's why he says, verse 32, this is tough. What do I gain 
if humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. Now all the hunters come out. Okay, how many of you guys are hunters? Okay, how many of you have actually killed an animal before? Okay, all right, so, okay, we're not, 10 of us, good. What's the biggest, what's the biggest animal you ever killed, brother? Four, excuse me? 14 point buck? So, is that a deer? Okay. okay. And the 14 points, it was like, it was like hitting threes and it had made, or, or I'm just kidding. I know what 14 points are. He had 14 teeth. It's cool, man. Now, um, so listen, when I, when I first read this, I thought with beasts at Ephesus, my initial thought is, I'm, I'm like picturing Paul in Ephesus, like walking up to a bear and like knifing its heart, you know, for Jesus. You see what I'm saying? Like, like that's kind of what I picture in my mind. But if you also know me, you know I'm super passionate about Ephesus. And so I know he wasn't smoking WWE style bears in the wilderness. I know what happened in Ephesus. So if you don't mind, let me tell you, okay? Ephesus, when Paul gets there, they are all entirely worshiping the breast goddess Artemis, okay? Google her, okay? Like it's kind of grotesque, okay? But the major trade in Ephesus is making these Artemis statues. So what happens when Paul gets to Ephesus in Acts 19 is he comes in, the major trade, making these statues of Artemis. He starts saying, man-made gods are no gods at all. Well, that's a problem because the major way of making money in Ephesus was building the statue. So if Paul's coming in and saying, yeah, all those things that you're making, uh, those are trinkets that need to be burned. They're meaningless. Man-made gods are no gods at all. These aren't shrines to be worshipped. This is ridiculous. Look at that thing. Are you kidding me? That's like totally inhumane, right? Well, what happens is three years worth of preaching, ministering in Ephesus, and eventually in ancient times there would be amphitheaters, and major city hubs. Uh, they would host gladiator-type uh, sporting events, or uh, they would host a theater at times, okay. gatherings for the city. Well, at the end of his time in Ephesus, the scripture records the city has gathered in this amphitheater, and the city is chanting, great is Artemis, great is Artemis. And it talks about Paul being in like the entrance to the amphitheater, having to be held back by his boys, because they knew if he went in there, he was going to die. You can read all this in Acts 19. So when I think he says, like, battling with beasts in Ephesus, he's talking about the feeling of watching an entire city literally be turned against, the gospel turned against him, this crazy confusion that was going on in the city, not a, a cutthroat bear, okay? So now we can move on. Look what he says at the end of verse 32. If the dead are not raised... Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. All right, let's have some fun. Um, okay, here's a scenario. Um, what's your name, bro? John. John, I'm talking to you because you're wearing a Puma shirt, and I'm very thankful for that. So praise the Lord. Okay. Um, so John, we find out John is a massive prophet, okay? And um, John fills us in, okay? Because, again, he's wearing a purple Puma shirt, which is awesome. John fills us in that the world is ending tomorrow, okay? Uh, he's a prophet, so we believe him, right? All right, dude, like tomorrow, you know, at uh, 9.38, we're all, she gone. Like, we're all out of here, okay? Now, we leave our thoughts about, you know, Christ and the afterthought. We're just like, oh, we got 24 hours to live. Here's my question for you. No Sunday school answers. You got 24 hours to live. What are you going to do? You got 24 hours to live. So I'm going to a little interaction, okay? What would you do? You got 24 hours What's that? Okay, go see your family, okay? Anybody else? Come on. What's that? Call your coworkers? Yeah, for sure. Not go to work. Who would go to work, right? Like, you know, like, the, the, uh, like people are trying to go to TGI Fridays because it's the last day of the world, and they want some of that Jack Daniels awesome sauce. Have you had it? Anyway, right? And, and nobody's there. Like, no one's going to work. What else? What would you do? Okay, a lot of ice cream. Ushri, what would you do? Come on. Go to the beach. So, Carlisle Beach or like 
Because it'd take a long time to drive to Florida, bro. You'd waste half your day driving there, man. All right? Listen, here's what Paul's saying. If Jesus hasn't resurrected, then don't hold back. You got some sinning to do. If he hasn't resurrected, then eat and drink. For tomorrow we die, man. Listen, go out and have a heyday. And some of you now are realizing the implications. So if he has resurrected, but I'm still living like there are no consequences, then what is my life saying? It's interesting, right? How many of you are living like man doesn't reap what he sows, that your decisions don't have impact, and that you can live under the confines of grace as if tomorrow it'll all be over, so tonight we go out with a bang. Now Paul is trying to make sure that his hearers and now readers have a chance to do some heavy heart checking. We're not living like we can party, like there's no tomorrow. We are embracing the opportunity to live like we have an eternity with Christ. There's a big difference. Now, what's going to start happening inside of you is you're going to start wrestling with some very, very deep-rooted things. Because Paul now is he's taking a direction. The implications of the depth of the resurrection are now going to start digging really, really in. That's why he says this. Next slide. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Well, the first thing that your attention should be drawn to is the quotation marks. Right? So you're like, where did, did Paul get that from Dr. Phil? You know, like where, like, where did that come from? Is that an Oprah quote? Like, how did it... Did that somehow like transfer in the Greek, you know? Well, the question, it sounds like a Proverbs, maybe, like, like where is this coming from? Can I show you where this uh, quotation came from? Check this out. Here's where it came from, okay? Um, this guy's named Menander, okay? Uh, which is kind of a redundant name, right? Because short, it's man, right? Menander is his name. He died in 290 BC. He wrote 108 comedies, playwrights. And in one of those playwrights, uh, Tiasis was the name, okay? He wrote this quote, bad company ruins good morals. And so the question is, why in the world would Paul, some hundreds of years after the death of Menander, the death of this playwright, why would he now bring it up in Corinth? Like this kind of is weird. Well, what you'll know about Paul is he was very, very learned on the philosophies and philosophers, the influencers of the day. And so he inserts this statement, A, because it's true, but B, because he knows this will relate to a culture of Corinth which is heavy in the arts. And so he uses the thing that they're drawn to to make a very poignant truth. One that, interestingly enough, transcends not hundreds of years from Menander to Paul, but thousands of years from Paul to us. In light of this truth, let's do some relational assessment. Is that cool with you guys? Even if it's not, we're going to. Here we go. I want to ask you three questions, and I want you to be very, very honest. Bad company ruins good morals. How about number one? Are there relationships that you have where you are the one being influenced? Not talking positive or negative. I'm just asking a question. Parents, grandparents, coaches, co-workers, bosses, professors. Are there any relationships in your life where you are the one that are being influenced? Where you're listening to teaching or direction or coaching? Uh, You're being impacted somehow by actions. And then that influence is causing some sort of reaction in you. I think all of us could say, of course, 
Every single one of us in this room have relationships, discipling relationships or whatever. We have relationships that are influencing us. So question number two becomes very, very pertinent. If so, is that influence pointing towards Christ or directing you away from Christ? So if you took your answer from question one and you grabbed all of those relationships and you started putting them in categories, here are all the relationships that influence me and push me towards the Lord Jesus and here are all the relationships that influence me that seemingly try to pull me away or direct me away from Christ. You step back a little bit. You're like, for whatever reason, when I get around these people, my language loosens. I mean, I've n- I haven't dropped one F-bomb with those people over here, but when I, when I get around these people, something happens. Like, I... These people, I, I find myself drinking more. These people, I find like gossip just like emerging out of my heart, judgment all of a sudden. Like I, I demean people left and right. And, and, and when I get around these people, uh, and particularly like maybe around these guys, I completely degrade women. When I get around these people, I become a racist. When, and on and on and on. Bad company ruins good morals. Uh, so when we, when we were a kid, we called it peer pressure. And now when we're adults, we call it peer pressure. We want to call it something else so it doesn't sound childish. Seriously. Uh, we're really impacted negatively by those around us. Like, right? Like we want to come up with some phrase. Yeah, well, when I was a kid... Man, every once in a while I would succumb to peer pressure. But now that I'm, a, I'm an adult, I never worry about what people think. I never appease people. I'm not interested in, in making people happy. Listen, if they accept me or not, it's no big deal. And all of us know, that's hogwash. The same childish ways. When we were six, seven, eight, nine years old, longing for acceptance, still rears its ugly head as the influencers in our life pulling us away from Christ dig into our insecurity, causing us to do things ultimately at times we don't want to do so that in their eyes we will be seen as valued. Now, the third question, I understand fully that many of you are not ready to wrestle with this, but I want to put it out there so that together we can at least begin the process. Number three, if there are any leading you away from Christ, what are you willing to do? Anytime I'm talking about sin with someone, they're confessing it to me, I always ask this question, what are you willing to do? So God will come up to me, Mark, I'm struggling with porn, okay? And the major source of where I look at pornography is my phone. And so I say, are you willing to give up your phone? Are you willing to throw it away? I mean, Mark, come on, dude, don't. Don't be crazy. I'm not going to give up my phone, okay? Jesus, confess your sin, but you're not willing to give up the source. I just want to make sure we're on the same page. Same kind of situation. Hey, Mark, I'm struggling with porn. The, the source is my computer. All right, so you willing to give up your computer? I mean, Mark, it's a, it's a Mac, right? Like, I, if it was a PC, I mean, maybe we could negotiate, right? But I mean, I'm... This thing's like a, it's a MacBook Air. I'm like, there's no way I'm throwing it away. Okay, so what you're telling me is you've just confessed this sin, but there are certain things that you're not willing to do to run away from it, right? Is, is that, I just want to make sure we're on the same page. Well, I, yeah, I guess, I guess that's true. So now let me ask you this. You're realizing that you have relationships that are luring you away from Christ. Can I ask you this? What are you willing to do? Well, Mark, I don't, I don't want to offend anyone. But you're willing to offend the Lord? Can you see for one second 
how unbelievably ignorant we are. We would rather protect relationships with people who are taking us away from Christ than protect our relationship with the Christ. You see how insecure we are? Worrying more about what this person who doesn't even value us think, completely turning our backs on the one who values us as a son and daughter, even though we deserve to be killed by him. This makes no sense. What are you willing to do? Listen, you're not strong enough to be in some of these relationships. You're not strong enough to be in some of these sororities or fraternities or to be in some of these workplaces. What are you willing to do? Well, Mark, I I can't give up my job. Why not? We're laying our lives down for the cause of Christ. Well, Mark, I can't give up that relationship. What if no one else ever loves me? Are you kidding me? You have the love of the one who actually you need. What are you willing to do, my friends? The answer to that question will show you what you're willing not to do. And I just want to make sure all of us tonight are confronted with that truth and those answers. Because quite honestly, tonight, some of you need to walk away. But Mark, but Mark, what, what, ha- like, what, what, if, what if they're offended? Mark, what if we never have relationship again? Mark, what if they never come to Christ? It's not your job to save and it's not your job to sanctify. Every relationship that comes to me, guy, girl, where they're unequally yoked, where one is passionate about Christ and the other's not. But Mark, if we break up, then Mark, they're not, they're not gonna get saved. Excuse me? They're not gonna get saved. So their salvation is dependent on your dating relationship? You need to read your Bible again, my friend. It's not you that saves, thankfully. It's the Lord that does, and not just does he save, but he's the one that sanctifies. Do you guys understand? Listen, I love and care for you so much, and right now some of you are in relationships. I'm not just talking about dating, guys. We're talking about every relationship you have. And there are some relationships right now where it's clear that bad company is ruining good morals, and at what cost? Your life. Your joy who God's made you to be and the appeasement of a human is dragging you in to things and opportunities of darkness and I'm just right now asking you to be confronted with that truth. If I had to walk away from relationships, yes. There may be a day where you're strong enough where you're the influencer and not the influenced but you need to grow and growing is okay. So grow. I'm saying Paul is digging in to then make one very, very, very bold statement. Verse 34. Wake up from your drunken stupor. Let me say it again. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. He says, I say this to your shame. So first, the overarching theme is this. Listen, son or daughter of a great king, Some have never even heard of Christ. And you know that he has risen from the dead. So why in the world then are you in a drunken, complacent stupor? Wake up. There are some that have never tasted grace, that don't know mercy, that have never encountered the depth of a love that isn't based on merit. There are some that have never even heard that truth, and you have heard it, and tonight you have heard it, my friends. And yet you would somehow continue on sinning like he's not resurrected. You would take grace for granted. You would look at the opportunity that you have to follow Christ and say, no, I have my own way. Paul is saying, oh, my goodness, wake up. 
Now, listen. When I picture a wake-up call, it's often very, very abrupt, and I understand when some of you picture God doing a wake-up call for you even right now. You picture your head on a tee and God with a bat. And trust me, he can hit well, okay? Right? And that, that's your picture. You're like, okay, so my head's on a tee. God's got a Louisville slugger. And he's, he's going to hit my face out of the park to wake me up. But what if? What if the wake-up call tonight was a loving, merciful, gracious God who gave you the perspective that right now you have the opportunity to wake up? What if you saw not your head on a tee, but your heart in his arms? What if you knew tonight that some of you who are in the drunken state of enslavement to your sin tonight have an opportunity to be woken up by the life of a risen reigning Lord and the love of a good father who's offered an invitation for you to come to him. Now, I've never been drunk. I know many of you have, and so you know what that feels like. You know what it's like to be in a drunken stupor. You know how disorienting it is. Uh, For me, I I more relate to seasons when I'm distant from the Lord to fog. Some of you have driven through fog before. One of the most painful memories of my entire life happened a night where it was foggy, where I was trapped in sin, and I literally ended on a bridge in in my car, and it was like the fog was just encircling me. True story, I got on my knees next to the car because my sin had just entrapped me so much. Everything was foggy. I wasn't seen clearly. And I just got on my knees next to my car when I was 18 years old and cried out to the Lord in repentance. And 100% true story, the fog lifted right then in that moment. For some of you, maybe it's not foggy, maybe it's numbness. Maybe you're realizing that you just become incredibly numb to your sin. Like you don't even feel bad anymore. There's no conviction. You're just rolling and doing it time and time and time again. Like every once in a while trying to slap yourself to make sure you're still alive, realizing that you're dead. And Paul says, wake up now. There's time. Well, I know many of you haven't experienced a wake-up call, but there's three responses The first response is you completely ignore it. Because the thing about a wake-up call is you have to answer. And so some of you even now will ignore. The ring will be consistent. I love you. My grace is enough for you. You can turn from your sin. You don't have to be enslaved to it any longer. Consistent. And some of you tonight will decide to let it ring. I remember times as a family, like the wake-up call ring going for a half an hour past what we had even asked for, and all of a sudden we woke up and realized it had been ringing the whole time. I know tonight some of you will ignore it. I'm praying against it, but I know some of you will. The second response is the quick pick up and hang up. Not even the courtesy to talk to the hotel attendant. 723 comes, you, you know who it is, you, you know that it's the wake-up call, you pick up the phone, instantly hang it up, you give yourself the satisfaction that, hey, at least I answered it, and then you roll back over into your slumber. The third option is the wake-up call not just gets your attention, but it gives alertness and awareness and the fog clears and what was numb all of a sudden gets feeling and what wasn't conviction, all of a sudden you are so slambasted with conviction then the kindness of the Lord draws you to repentance. 
Some of you right now, even in this moment, are all of a sudden being so overwhelmed with conviction because you realize the darkness that you've been living in. Because right now, in this second, you're waking up. The fog is lifting. You're like, how in the world have I been living like this when he's resurrected? Well, guess what? The grace of the Lord will bathe you, cover you, wash over you in this moment. So please do not let condemnation win. That's what happens when you wake up. You wake up to a loving, merciful, gracious, invitational God. That's why the power of the resurrection is seen in those who have been awakened. Let's say it this way. Next slide. We're going to give some space and time tonight. My sense is, is that some of you need minutes to talk to the Lord. Uh, some of you, your only prayer right now will be, God, I feel numb. My life is foggy. Will you please wake me up? That will be some of your prayer. Others, others of you, it'll be repentance. God, I'm tired of confessing sin. I'm ready to turn from it. Some of you will need to get with friends and pray. Others of you on your face, crying out to the Lord. Others of you maybe writing prayers down on pieces of paper. This meal is going to be here for us to share in. Both sides of the room, this meal is for believers. At some point in this journey of response tonight, uh, all of a sudden the Lord will impact on you the reality of his grace. So come and share in it. Believer, pull off a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup, representing the beautiful sacrifice of our Christ and then the celebration of his resurrection. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters who I love and care for so much, tonight you can wake up. And that is the hope of a risen Lord. So God, please, stir in my friends action. Stir in my friends response to your pursuit. Stir in all of us tonight a longing to be awakened by the life that we have in you. So God, wake us up tonight. Wake us up, God.